0: All right, so uh, last week we talked about Ecclesiastes. Hopefully, not too sobering of a sermon, but a somewhat sobering sermon, recognizing what life under this earth really is like. That it is fleeting, that things that we want to be permanent do not last, that they disappear, they are fading. That was the lesson we learned last time. And in the midst of all of this struggle and suffering, all of those realities, It's only natural that the author of Ecclesiastes would move from kind of that difficult point to talking about pleasure. He goes to pleasure because that is our natural tendency when we are in the midst of suffering and sorrow is to look to pleasure as our escape, as where we go for refuge, as kind of an anesthesia for the pain of the world. And so today we're going to be looking at the pursuit of pleasure in our pursuit series, this teaching on Ecclesiastes. But before we jump in, I want to clarify what my role as the pastor is as it regards pleasure and enjoyment and joy. Now, as your pastor, I am the steward of your joy. That's actually one of my roles, is to make sure that you guys are joyful and full of the joy of the Lord. Of course, I'm other things as well. I'm a steward of your faith, your relationship with God, your holiness. But know that I see that as my role. That I'm to make sure that you guys are joyful, happy people. So, uh, just keep that in mind. Because that is actually God's role as well. He is a steward of all of our joy and enjoyment and pleasures. That is why he gives us his commands, is so that we would know what a life of joy in him and in this life looks like. That is why he even calls us to a relationship that we might have the joy of mutually loving one another. So that is the starting point. This is a, it's, hopefully that's a positive start to what might be some negative things said in Ecclesiastes. So, my job in, in that task is to kill some of the piddly little worthless joys that you guys find yourself committed to and replacing them with the real joys, the real good things that God promises. So that is going to be our task today. All right. So as we go through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see different passages. It talks a lot about pleasure, actually. So we're going to explore that and then see how that all wraps up and has to do with the new kingdom and pleasure in the midst of it. So just a little outline, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that pleasure is corrupted and fallen in this life under the sun. But nonetheless, we're going to see that it is a God-given good gift. And then we're going to see how the new kingdom actually redeems those two things. All right? So turn with me to, uh, to Ecclesiastes 2, starting with verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes 5.54, I think, in the the pew Bible. so uh, read with me, chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." All right. From this passage, we can see where we're going to start. We're starting with the fact that pleasure is corrupted. And that pleasure is fleeting. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's task is to test various things in this life. He's testing things to see what they're worth. If they are worth our pursuit, if they are worth our time. Now from the beginning, he recognizes that pleasure is one of those things that has to be tested. Even though In the wisdom literature, it falls under the category of foolishness. He knows that pleasure falls under that category. But he has seen people commit their whole life to pleasure, to the pursuit of pleasure. And so he is committed to his task, leaves no stone unturned, and decides that he is going to actually test that life. Is a life of pursuing pleasure worth it or not? So verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure Enjoy yourself. He's committed to his task, but from the beginning, he kind of reveals the moral of the story. He can't help it, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? There is like a madness, a craziness to laughter when you look at the nature of the world, the state of the world. Amusement is kind of odd in contrast verse 3 I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of this life alright so that is his task but already we can see the problem here he alludes to it at the end of that verse during the few days of his life That is the problem that is going to kind of cast a shadow over all of Ecclesiastes is that man has but a few days to live this life the reality of death looms over and that is going to prove to be the sticking point for all of Ecclesiastes not just the pursuit of pleasure and yet he embarks on this journey all the same he is going to give it its go see if the rumors are true that pleasure is worth it And he starts with none other than chemical pleasure. He starts with wine. Wine to cheer the body. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. We learned that last week. And alcohol and drugs have been there from the very beginning. We haven't thought of anything new. So Solomon, he mentions wine pretty quickly, but then moves off from it. Now, that could be because he recognizes immediately the folly of it. That it is foolishness. I think more likely it's because that's gonna form kind of the foundation for a life of hedonism and for a life of pleasure, that that kind of runs through the course of this whole test, as it were. And I think that's one of the first signs that we see that pleasure is fallen and that it is corrupted in this life. That you can have a whole lifetime of pursuing pleasure, kind of a whole course underlying the life that you have We are constantly running after this same thing for a whole lifetime and finding that you are not content and you are not any happier. And that is the sad reality of these addictive pleasures. That we run to them and often we run to them because life is fleeting. Because we have but a few days. Because we are full of sorrow. And we're trying to drown out that truth. We're trying to squelch the idea that maybe life isn't as it should be. And life isn't as I wanted it to be. And so we're desperately trying to work through pleasure. To find meaning in it. But, just as we recognize that good works don't overwhelm sin in our own hearts, in the same way these good times cannot overwhelm the sorrows. And so, from the beginning we have this sad reality That pleasure is oftentimes just a kind of throwing into the void, trying to get some meaning out of a really sad and hopeless life. All right, this is Ecclesiastes. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. Um, Now, so that is the starting point. That is the starting point. To throw as much pleasure as you can at a really dark and fallen world. All right, but he does some other things too. It's not just drinking himself to death. He also takes on some building projects. So let's look at verse four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them and all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees, male and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Gather for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces, singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. Now, that is as good as you're going to get in the ancient world. That is all the good things gathered together. And the irony of it is that this is the same list that we probably have today. Nothing else has changed. This is just, uh, we update our list a little bit. We want our nice house, maybe houses. He has houses, we might want houses. We want a, a nice big yard, some fruit trees, pools. You might exchange your cattle and flocks for, for some nice cars. You might, AOP has money, gold and silver. He has his ancient entertainment, his singers to replace our big screen TVs and our surround sound. And then he has, not to be forgotten of course, the concubines Sex is part of this as well. This list has not changed over thousands of years. These are all the same things we're still running after. Then he describes what, what that came to in verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desires, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So if we summarize how Solomon did at his test, say he was pretty successful. He did everything he set out to do. He has found pleasure, and he has found lots of it. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about what Solomon's life really looked like. During his time in Israel, he made gold and silver so abundant that it was as common as stone. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He is, if you kind of equal the playing field over time, he is one of the ten richest men who ever existed over the course of the world. All right. Why do I tell you that? Why do we care about this life of Solomon? I think we care because he has had more earthly pleasure than we probably ever will, he has been better at the task of being the rich, successful, happy person. He did it better than any of us will. We will not get to that point. He has had more pleasure than we will. More stuff, more gold, more women. He has had more of everything. And in verse 11, he describes what that has amounted to. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, All was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He looks over his empire, all that he had gathered, and he says basically that it has come to nothing. That it was one big fruitless task and that at the end of his life he's looking back and saying that it wasn't worth it. This is a guy who had everything you could have. He has done it and he's telling us right now that it is not worth it. Now, we can, we can shirk that and just kind of ignore that or we can receive his wisdom. This is a guy who had it all and he's kind of pleading with us to not try this test again. We can try to make our life once again all about pleasure. He's basically saying, I've been there, I've tried that, it's really not worth it. We ought to hear that wisdom. Because why would a person need 700 wives and 300 concubines? This must be some sort of fruitless task. Right? It's just not, it's not working for him. You kind of always need another wife. You always need another house. You always need more money. And that's the reality of a pursuit of pleasure according to worldly means. It will never be enough. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never have enough money, a big enough house. All the things that you think you want, you'll never have enough and they will never satisfy you. This is a man who took it to the the umpt degree, ridiculously so, and he has not been satisfied. And I think the fact that that pleasure is so fleeting is for Solomon a sign of something even bigger. Look at verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head but the fool walks in darkness and yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no interring remembrance. Seeing that the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool so I hated life because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. He has tried being a fool. He has tried being wise. And the sad reality is that they both come to the same end of death. And so, pleasure cannot remain. It cannot endure. In the same way that life cannot endure, it cannot remain. And so, uh, Solomon's wisdom here is that running after wisdom is fleeting, or sorry, he said that about wisdom too, but uh, running after pleasure is fickle and it is fleeting and it's going to abandon you in the end. We have to hear that. And we have to realize that in the midst of a sorrowful and a painful world, we can't just numb the effects with pleasure. That's not what pleasure is for, and pleasure isn't able to do that. We often think that if we throw enough good times at our sorrows and at our troubles, we won't feel them anymore. The thing is, it will never be enough to squelch those things. When we are bored or anxious, feel guilty or shameful or fearful, you can't kill those things with pleasure. You're just going to defer them. Maybe distract yourself from them, but the true problem is going to remain. The true problem remained for Solomon. He was able to see that. He was wise enough to see that, and we need to be as well. All right. First point. Downer. All right, all right. <laughs> that's, where we're, that's where we're supposed to be with Ecclesiastes. We're supposed to feel that way. There's more to say here. There's there's point number two. Yay for point number two. All right, Pleasure is also in Ecclesiastes recognized as a God-given good thing. And we cannot miss that. Because we probably all feel the same way when we talk about pleasure like that, that it can't get us anywhere. I think we start to feel kind of desperate. We start to recognize, well, where else am I supposed to go? Or we question, like, well, there are good things that I like. And I don't want to hear a sermon that that squashes on all the things that I love. And most of the time, sermons like this are kind of just like, throw a lot of guilt on you. You feel bad for a little bit, maybe change a little bit. But then we all go back and live our same lives. And remember, I am a steward of your joy, so I'm not just trying to steal all the good things and leave you with nothing. All right? And if we look at other passages in Ecclesiastes, there are some really positive passages. Look at Ecclesiastes 2.24. 2.24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have any enjoyment. Ecclesiastes 3:12 through 13. 3:12 through 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that every man should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. All right. So, pleasure while it is fleeting And while it is not able to drown out sorrow and sin, it's still good. It's still really good. And the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he recommends it. He's no more against pleasure than he's against wisdom. These things have their place and they are good things. And so, I want to remind us that as Christians, we can sometimes act like we don't like good things and feel like we're kind of pretending and deceiving ourselves. We all kind of sit around and say, oh, yeah, we don't like drinking or sex or luxuries. Those are all bad things. And then we go out and live our lives in just the opposite way. We want to start by recognizing that good things are good things. And the Bible knows that pleasures are good. And that actually receiving pleasures as such is a gift from God. And it's not because we're sinful, it's because we're human. And humans were made to enjoy those things. Pleasures are a gift from God. A gift from his hand, something we receive from him. And so the solution here is not to be ascetics. What is an ascetic? Ascetic is someone who denies themself. <laughs> Because they think that that's what they have to do. They deny themselves pleasures. Because they think that it will make them unholy or weak. It will take them away from God. That just by cutting out the pleasures, they'll somehow be better people. The thing is that the Bible never talks like that. The Bible says that pleasure is actually supposed to point us to God. All of those good things that you like, they're supposed to point you to see the Creator and how the Creator is actually really good. Alright, so our Creator saw fit to see that things like cheesecake exist in creation. <laughs> now that for me makes me understand God's goodness a little differently and a little better. And there's countless things like that, you know, cheesecake. <laughs> Ferguson's like cheesecake, they're all talking to each other. <laughs> um, and he made all of those things. He made music. He made singing. He made nature. Horseback riding. Fishing. Gardening. Cross-country running. Uh, some people like that stuff. I don't like that one. But uh, <laughs> Literature. He made lacrosse. He made Pokemon cards. Yeah, me and Caden, we <laughs> like those together. You see, all of these things are part of God's good creation. And they're supposed to point us to the fact that God is good. That he is really good. And so, that's that's actually the point of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a pleasure garden. A place where man was supposed to enjoy themselves. And enjoy every aspect. That work would be a joy. Eating the fruit would be a joy. They would enjoy each other. And the hope was that that garden would start to be cultivated and become a whole city the new heavens and new earth, this beautiful city of enjoyment. All right, so by avoiding pleasure, you aren't necessarily being any more righteous. You can be someone who avoids all of these good things and just come out a miser, and someone who despises God's good gifts. That is not the solution, that is not what we're called to. We're not called to just deny ourselves. All right, so we're left with a problem here. We're saying both that pleasure is fleeting and vain and doesn't work in killing sorrows and sin. And we also see that pleasure is a gift from God and a really good thing. So the question is, how do we reconcile those things? How do we receive pleasure for what it is and actually enjoy it Get out of it what God wants us to. How do we see God in it? That takes us to another passage in Ecclesiastes. I said it talks about pleasure a lot. Uh, Turn to chapter 7, verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. There's an order we have to get right here. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. This whole passage in Ecclesiastes, he just throws out why death and mourning are better. It's better to see them. And then he goes on and says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now that is kind of the cryptic solution to pleasure that Solomon is getting at in the book of Ecclesiastes and that the Bible as a whole echoes. There's this irony that you can't get to pleasure without first going through sorrow. You can't just skip straight to pleasure. You actually have to come to sorrow first. Because until you have mourned, you haven't understood the world. You have to go to the place of mourning to see that this world is not what you want it to be. That it is not the pleasurable place that it's claiming to be. That pleasure in this world is broken and fleeting and failing. And only then, once you have mourned, will you be ready to see the real solution to the problem, which I hope you know is Jesus Christ. That is the solution to the mourning And that is why we start with mourning first. And we're not surprised by that fact because Jesus himself tells us that. In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke 6, it says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, why is that true? Why is that how it works in God's kingdom? Why is there that upside-down nature to it? It's because we have to first mourn to escape the grips of this life. We have to become so desperate and see how lost this world is that we would ever seek Jesus and not just distract ourselves. Because the temptation is just to distract ourselves to kind of cover up all this sorrow and pain and miss Jesus Christ altogether. That is our temptation. And so for those who mourn now, you're ready for the joy of the gospel. You're ready to receive the hope that there is an end to the mourning and the weeping. That Jesus is bringing a new kingdom where the rules of Ecclesiastes no longer apply. Where pleasure is not fleeting. Where death doesn't loom over everything. A life of, of real and true joy. If you can mourn now, you are ready for that. for the joy of relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus came here first, and he wept. He mourned. He saw the state of the world. But he's not doing that anymore. He is resurrected, and now he is ushering in a new kingdom. A new kingdom where this pain is is long forgotten. And we'll know the joy of non-fleeting pleasure. Pleasures as they were always meant to be. Cheesecake in a redeemed world. right? Better things than we can ever imagine. That is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But we don't get there until we have mourned. Knowing that once we get there, all those tears will be wiped away. That is God's promise to us. Alright, but that happens actually in daily life as well. So we think that okay, mourning gets us into the kingdom. But now what? That principle actually still still plays a part. We have to mourn first in all things if we're gonna actually know the pleasure of this life. Alright, so you have a hard day. You have a hard day, you're feeling miserable. You're not supposed to take that hard day to your television set, to a cold beer, to a big piece of chocolate cake. That's not where you take that bad day. You have to mourn first. You have to take that day to Jesus Christ. That is how you enter into the kingdom. Because Jesus, when he meets you, gives you real answers to those problems. Real answers to those sorrows. So that when you come, With your boredom, he gives you purpose. He reminds you of who you are. When you come with anxiety, he comes with real comfort, tells you that he is in control. When you come to him with fear, he tells you why you should have courage, that he has been victorious. When you come to him just feeling shameful and worthless, he reminds you of why you have value. When you come to him feeling guilty, he reminds you of how you are forgiven. That is how we enter into this kingdom of joy. By first bringing our sorrows to him and giving them to him. He offers more than just distraction. And once we do that, we have a completely new position regarding pleasure. We can pursue pleasure differently in the kingdom by by three ways. First of all, once you understand who Jesus is, you come to know that God isn't just this angry guy who's telling you rules. He's a guy who actually likes you and is, is working for your joy. And when you enter the kingdom, you get a second thing. You get freedom from sin for the first time. For the first time, you are able to choose good, choose command, uh, the, obeying the commands of Jesus over obeying sin. Now, what that does is, that makes it so you're able to obey the commands of God and actually get joy out of them. That is why the commands are there. So we may know the joy of God. We may know Him, have relationship with Him. We may go to the world... And get pleasure as it was supposed to be gotten from them. We go to these things. We go to sex and luxuries and, and beauty in and the world. And we get them as they were supposed to be. Unmarred and full of the pleasure that they're supposed to have. And we're supposed to have joy in that. So God is actually creating us to be people who pursue more and more real pleasure the real joy of this world. All right, secondly, secondly, once we are in this true place of comfort and care, we're pursuing pleasure for a different reason. Pleasure isn't just to drown out the sorrows. Remember, that's not what pleasure was for, so it doesn't work very well. And it corrupts our pleasures and makes them messed up, It makes them sinful because we're trying to make our pleasures do something they were never made to do. But once we go to God with our sorrows and then come to pleasures without all that pressure, they actually are able to flourish and grow and are able to, to pop out everywhere all over our lives so that a pursuit of pleasure doesn't have to be this roller coaster of like, oh, I feel bad, I need to get a high, and then I crash, and then I jump back up, pursuing pleasure once again. Instead, we're okay. We're okay, and we can take pleasure in things that we never thought pleasure would come from. The pleasure of just sitting outside and watching the breeze blow through the trees. Often that just sounds boring, but once everything is good, that's just a simple pleasure. A cup of coffee. Just a quiet evening. There's a beauty to those things. And those things are supposed to help us see God. And we're not on the roller coaster. We can just take all those things in and enjoy them. That is the goal. At least for simple pleasures in this life. But there's a third third way this is supposed to work. The third and final pleasure is the pleasure of... That we never had before. Of knowing Jesus Christ. As the one who is our savior. As the one who loves us. As the one who cares for us. And that makes us kind of weird people. Who pursue weird joys. So that we would rather sacrifice. And give of ourselves. We would rather serve other people. Be in relationship with people. Than pursue some of these other pleasures. Because the thing that we love the most is really supposed to be Jesus Christ himself and relationship with him so that we start throwing out other things that are weighing us down, keeping us from pursuing Jesus. When we have that perspective of just rejoicing in Jesus Christ and liking Jesus Christ, suddenly we're not just envious of the world, envious of the world or sick of the world or rejecting the world, hope is that we would just be kind of bored of the world. Because we've found better joys. We've found the joy of serving other people. We've found the joy of loving our neighbor. Of seeing people come to Christ. That is a joy that the world has never known and will never know. The joy of worshiping God. Worshiping the, the Savior that loves us. Those are joys that are not fleeting. Those are joys that are permanent. And those are joys that are going to last forever. There are, there are people who you will serve and you will love and you will get to know who will be with you forever. You will enjoy them for the, forever. So we better get, learn to get along here and now, right? We're going to be with each other for a long time. And investing in each other now is not a fleeting effort like Ecclesiastes would say. It lasts forever. And we're going to be worshiping God and Jesus Christ forever. Enjoying him for all eternity. Enjoying him now is going to last forever. It's not going to be a waste of time. Alright, so what am I calling you to do? I'm calling you to, in the pursuit of pleasure, first... First, go to sadness and mourning. Bring that to Jesus Christ. Don't try to just wash over it with pleasure. And then once you are free of those things, once you have received from Jesus Christ, you can pursue pleasure free from its fallen and fleeting state. Now, that's calls us to, to pursue pleasure in a different way than we probably often do. Or have before. And I hope that we would come to know. The pleasure of life in this new kingdom. To be people of joy. That is our hope.